everybody's tendency is to look away from this and pretend it didn't happen. And one of the functions of this case is it makes it impossible to look away and pretend it didn't happen. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the Supreme Court, the law, the rule of law, and uh, consequentialist judicial humility. I am Dahlia Lithwick. I cover those things for Slate, although I have to admit that very last beat is quite new uh, for the U.S. Supreme Court. So the judicial bonkers palooza of this week probably peaked at the high court Thursday morning with well over two hours of oral arguments in what would have been a vacation week in Trump v. Anderson. Uh, That is, of course, the Colorado ballot disqualification case. And we're going to dive right into what happened and didn't happen in those arguments with Noah Bookbinder. He's president of Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, better known as CRU. They brought this case on behalf of six Republican and unaffiliated Colorado voters. And we're going to hear from Noah in just a moment. Then we're going to turn to my friend and colleague and fellow sleep-deprived jurisprudence correspondent, Mark Joseph Stern, to try to figure out how the justices might corral five votes for any sort of off-ramp in this case, if that's what they want. And whether, as our friend Professor Rick Hassan has written this week, maybe this sets up some grand bargain for a Trump loss on the immunity case in the D.C. Circuit, uh, and a win in Colorado. We'll figure that out together. Then Mark will be back for a Slate Plus segment to think through a huge Hawaii gun decision. If you are not a Slate Plus member, head to slate.com slash amicus plus for details on how to listen in. But first... The play-by-play of what was concededly not maybe the greatest day in court for Colorado's effort to bar former President Donald J. Trump from its primary ballot, and also really not a great day for folks who had hoped that this case might somehow finally represent legal accountability for the insurrector-in-chief. So to talk about what happened on Thursday in court and what comes next is Noah Bookbinder. He's president of Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. You know them as crew. Noah is also a former federal corruption prosecutor, and he's also a friend. Noah, I was trying to remember, we bonded over sourdough. Is that right? I think that I think that may be right. I, I remember the drinks, but I think there was sourdough involved as well. <laughs> there was. I think you were carrying sourdough in your carry-on from San Francisco. In any event, um, I know this has been a hella week for you, so I just want to thank you for joining us to do kind of a postmortem on what may or may not have happened Thursday morning. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Happy to be here. And I wonder if you could start by just telling listeners a little bit about crew and what crew tries to watchdog and what motivated this particular lawsuit that you all filed in Colorado. Um, And I just want to note parenthetically that last year, crew represented residents of New Mexico who sued to remove a county commissioner from office. Um, It's the only successful case to have been brought under Section 3 since 1860. Nine. So there was a template for this, and I wonder if you could sort of walk us through how this notion of using Section 3 to get Trump off the ballot materialized. 
Yeah, absolutely. So Crew is an organization that promotes ethics in government, tries to work to reduce the influence of money in politics. And particularly in recent years, we've focused more and more on trying to ensure that American democracy is viable going forward, that we still have a form of government that works for the people. And that's something that has increasingly come into question, particularly once Donald Trump became president and and most acutely once he tried to keep himself in power after losing an election. After that happened, a number of people, including a couple of of lawyers who work for Crew, sort of looked at this largely forgotten piece of the Constitution, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, that says that if you are someone who takes an oath to support the Constitution and then engages in insurrection, you are disqualified from office. It was not an obscure piece of the Constitution when it was adopted. It was a pretty major part of the discussion and debate around the 14th Amendment. But, you know, for 150 plus years, we didn't have any insurrections. And so it it fell out of use. We started looking at that. And really, our thought was not theoretical. Our thought was, how do you use this? How do you establish that this is still a living part of the Constitution? And how do you find places where you can apply it effectively. And so we looked, our lawyers did a 50-state survey. They looked both at who are the people who applying a rigorous standard may have engaged in insurrection for the purposes of this provision, and where are places where you could bring this and get it in front of somebody who would give it a serious look. And we settled on this guy named Cooey Griffin, who was a a county commissioner in Otero County, New Mexico. He was the founder of Cowboys for Trump. He was on the steps of the Capitol on January 6th with a bullhorn. But maybe more significantly than that, he participated in a bus tour and rounded people up, got people to the Capitol, encouraged them to be violent, normalized that violence. He was a planner and an organizer. Um, and we were able to go into court, have a trial, a couple-day trial, with witnesses who both could talk about what this guy had done and also what this provision of the Constitution meant. And following trial, a judge determined that he had engaged in insurrection and he was disqualified and he was removed from office the next day. His stuff was packed into a box and and he was uh, removed from the building and the door was locked. um, And this became real. Uh, I think in an ideal world, we would have love to have brought five or six of those cases. But the next thing that happened is that Donald Trump announced that he was going to run for president again. And that, we believed, posed a unique threat to the democracy and also a uniquely important case for this provision. If it doesn't apply to the person who inspired and incited the only insurrection we've had since the Civil War, then it's hard to imagine it it applies to anybody. And so then we, we started looking for what is a way and what is a place where we can bring this action against Donald Trump with plaintiffs who are committed to bringing it in a way that can actually get it heard. And Noah, you and I, we did a, a live show talking about this in the fall And I think the sort of zeitgeist that you both kind of integrated and also refuted, I thought really persuasively was, yes, you're right on the merits, you're right on the history, you're right on the text, and this is just too big a swing. The court's not going to do this. And it, it certainly seemed to me, you can tell me if I'm wrong, that the vibe at the court was that the court, you know, 
maybe showed some interest in the originalism and the text and the history, but really the just overwhelming sense was the absolutely ends-driven, this is too much, and a sense that the consequences were just too weighty. And I want to play for a second, this is Elena Kagan uh, giving voice to that. Put most boldly, I think that the question that you have to confront is why a single state should decide who gets to be president of the United States. In other words, you know, this question of whether a former president is disqualified for insurrection uh, to be president again is, you know, just say it. It sounds awfully national to me. So is it fair, Noah, to say that the court just blinked, that you did something kind of brave and at least in theory in keeping with text and history and originalism. And it was just, they weren't super interested in that because it was too much. You know, I I think what we were asking, what we are asking this court to do, what we were asking prior courts to do, is truly extraordinary. We've never been in a situation where a former president of the United States, the leading presidential candidate of one of our major parties, could be removed from the ballot, and of all things, removed for engaging in insurrection. It's absolutely extraordinary. It would immediately become, I think, one of the most significant cases in in American history. And so, in some ways, I look at that and I say, of course the court is going to be skeptical. Of course they're going to ask a ton of hard questions, going to have to kind of be dragged into doing it, um, because... The court is never looking to do something that will massively change society. Or we, we can argue about whether the court is ever looking to do that. But I think it, it's something that they that they certainly, I think, have a, have a tendency to resist. And the only reason to do it is because the law and the Constitution require it. And we believe that is clearly true here. But at some level, we weren't surprised at all by the fact that they came into it from a sense of, we can't really do this, can we? And, and, you know, I I think that is natural. Um, I do think that certainly the more I've gotten steeped in this, and I think you saw it with the amicus briefs from historians, from legal scholars who have studied this for periods of time going back before January 6th happened, from uh, officials across the the political spectrum, that, that more and more as people look at this, the law is actually not that hard, and the history is very straightforward. It clearly applies to presidents. It clearly is self-executing. And I still continue to hope that as the justices really dive into that, they're going to kind of feel like they have no choice. That's certainly what I hope. I think the other dynamic, as I look at this, is you know we are in a situation where the future of American democracy is truly in danger. You know, where a person who lost an election and tried to keep himself in power by force is very realistically in a position to either become president again or to lose again and try to install himself by force. Um, Those are real things that uh, not only could happen, but have decent likelihood of happening. And, you know, we could be in a situation where that person who already tried to attack the republic and our our democratic system of government can do it again. And institution after institution is taking a pass on doing anything about it. It's kind of saying, it's hard, somebody else can do it. 
And eventually, either somebody's going to have to step up and follow the law and follow the Constitution, or we're going to lose our democracy, or at least we're going to be at a very significant risk of doing it. It's our hope that the U.S. Supreme Court ultimately does see this through that lens. I think that's a tough place to get to. It felt to me, and this is sort of a, a little grumpy old man, shakes fists at sky response, that the one thing I needed to hear on Thursday was someone taking the insurrection itself seriously. There were moments at which it felt like Justice Sotomayor was trying to do that, but there was just such a deep willingness. I mean, it, it, it struck me as ironic that Jonathan Mitchell arguing for Trump was the person who conceded that it was violent and criminal and, you know, a, a kind of light riot. For an insurrection, there needs to be an organized, concerted effort to overthrow the government of the United States through violence. And this and so riot the point that is that a chaotic effort to overthrow the government is not an insurrection. No, we didn't concede that it's an effort to overthrow the government either, Justice Jackson. Right? None of these criteria were met. This was a riot. It was not an insurrection. The events were shameful, criminal, violent, all of those things. But it did not qualify as insurrection, as that term is used in Section Three. Fascinating to me that given the opportunity to at least behave as though it was something serious, there was such a willingness either to minimize it. Here's Amy Coney Barrett sort of asking, like, what? We're supposed to, like, watch video of what happened at the ellipse? If we review the facts, essentially, de novo, you want us all to just watch the video of the ellipse and then make a decision without any deference to or guidance from lower court fact-finding, that's unusual. And I guess I had the sense that the chief justice himself was like, I don't know what an insurrection could be. You know, what? who, who am I to make a judgment? Maybe they've got a stack of papers saying, here's why I think this person is guilty of uh, insurrection. It's not a big insurrection, something that, you know, happened down the, down the street, but they say this is still an insurrection. I don't know what the standard is for when it arises uh, to that. I think embedded in this question, Noah, is you made the point, I thought advocates for Colorado made the point, we don't have a lot of either dicta or doctrine on what an insurrection is, because thankfully it doesn't happen every week. There was a way in which the enormity of the stakes was both the reason that we were here and also the reason the justices didn't want to talk about it. I think that's right. I think, you know, look, a more positive way of looking at this and something that that jumped out to me is that the justices were skeptical about a lot of things, clearly. I didn't hear a lot of skepticism about the finding by the courts in Colorado that Donald Trump engaged in insurrection. There wasn't much. Uh, you know, there was a little bit around the edges about one of the experts and about different states could have different standards, but there really was not a lot of sniping at this really huge determination that was made. And so you could certainly look at that and say, everybody kind of knew and accepted as a given that there was an insurrection and Donald Trump engaged in it. And we do hope that whatever the court decides, um, that comes out. I do agree with you that in some ways, it was a little confounding where some of the justices seemed to say, well, who's to say what might be an insurrection and what might not be, when, you know, this court has rarely been shy about its own 
ability to interpret constitutional provisions and say what is and what is not covered by them, particularly in this case where I think there are two things you can say. One is that, as our advocate Jason Murray made very clear yesterday, the history is really quite clear about what constitutes an insurrection. But more than that, even if there's any ambiguity, this case falls so far outside of that ambiguity that it doesn't really matter. And so, you know, this sort of notion of who are we to speak on this didn't really hold up very well because that's what courts do. That's what we have a court system for. And again, I I, I hope that as the justices, and particularly somebody like Chief Justice Roberts, who I think has been very robust in asserting the role of the courts in interpreting the Constitution, as they think about that, I think that's going to be, I think and hope that that's going to be inescapable to them. We are taking a quick break. More now on the arguments in the Colorado ballot disqualification case with Noah Bookbinder of Crew, who represented the six Republican and unaffiliated voters who brought that case. I want to ask you about the strategy that Jonathan Mitchell, arguing on behalf of Trump, devoted huge amount of the briefing to this, you know, the president is not contemplated as an officer argument. I think a lot of us thought that wasn't the strongest argument and that they conceded or didn't touch some of the stronger arguments, including some of the dissents in the Colorado Supreme Court. Um, And then there was this moment, probably you felt it in your bones the way I did, when it appeared that even Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson was accepting the proposition that Section 3 was just directed at lesser officers and not the presidency. Let's listen. I didn't see any evidence that the presidency was top of mind for the framers when they were drafting uh, Section 3 because they were actually dealing with a different issue. Um, The pressing concern, at least as I see the historical record, was actually what was going on at lower levels of the government the possible infiltration and embedding of insurrectionists into the state government apparatus, and the real risk that former Confederates might return to power in the South via state-level elections, either in local offices or as representatives of uh, the states in Congress. I wonder if there was something about that arcane textualist originalist argument that takes the pressure off the justices from deciding the consequentialist thing and that maybe it was right of Mitchell to put all his eggs in a basket that I think the historians refuted pretty well, but maybe it just doesn't matter. I can understand why, you know, if we we start with the premise that the justices are looking for an off-ramp, which I hope is not the is not the premise that we should be starting with but you know for the sake of argument let's let's start there there's something attractive about this right because it 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 is a way to decide this case that doesn't affect many future cases and and actually if we take the argument that the sort of extreme argument that that Jonathan Mitchell spent a lot of time on, it's not just excluding presidents. It is really a Donald Trump-specific exclusion. It is saying that this does not cover a president who never previously 
swore an oath as part of a previous office, which applies to, as far as we know in American history, Donald Trump and George Washington. And, you know, that's an easy off-ramp to take because you make this decision and could well be that it never applies in another case throughout American history. The only problem with it is that it's clearly wrong. You know, the history and the language, when you dive into it, doesn't support it. As you said, the historians, and really is close to 50 of the very, very top historians of that period are very clear on the fact that everybody involved intended it to cover presidents and the text when you look at it, the uh, history, the statements of the people who drafted it and who voted on it. Um, you know, nothing really supports that. And I actually think that in Jason Murray's argument, discussing it with, with Katanji Brown-Jackson, ultimately when he was able to go through with her you know, the reason why senators and representatives and electors are included is because those are not considered officers under the Constitution. And the reasons why presidents, and I think it was really, it really got through, and he said presidents and Supreme Court justices are not included is because they are officers. And this argument that like presidents are important, wouldn't you include them if you wanted them in there? I don't think you're going to have any Supreme Court justice who's going to say that Supreme Court justices aren't important and it would make sense to just include them in a catch-all, but not presidents. That's that's not a distinction that makes any sense. It's certainly not, I think, a distinction that, that's going to accord with the worldview that the Supreme Court has. My sense is that that was very persuasive and maybe closed that argument. But but this, I mean, even just taking a step back, uh, Jonathan Mitchell, I, I thought, did a very effective job of arguing. But his answer to the question from one of the justices of, you know, why would it make sense to have an exception that is Donald Trump specific, his answer was essentially, well, it wouldn't, but there just is. And, and that was his answer because it's the only answer, but it's not a satisfying answer. And I have trouble imagining the Supreme Court ultimately going down that path, as, even as tempting as it might be. Yeah, I think that was a nice moment when Justice Sotomayor, who was just not here for much of this, called it a sort of gerrymandered definition, a, a kind of good for, for one president only uh, definition. You argue that even though the president may or may not qualify, presidency may or may not qualify as an office under the United States, um, your principal argument is that the president is not an officer of the United States, correct? Yeah, I would say it a little more forcefully than what Your Honor just described. We believe the presidency is excluded from office under the United States, but the argument we have that he's excluded the president as an officer of the United States is the stronger of the two textually and has fewer uh, implications for other constitutions. Bit of a gerrymandered rule, isn't it, designed to benefit only your client? I want to stipulate with you that we have sort of had this conversation from the vantage of it sure looked like they wanted an off-ramp. And, and, and you're quite right. Maybe that's not even a fair place to begin this conversation and certainly not to end it. But I do want to ask you if the disaster scenario is that the court kicks the can down the road and it turns out that the can is a grenade because on January 6th of 2025, and this was, you know, in reference to the Rick Hassan brief, um, in 2025, uh, on January 6th, uh, Congress does what the court says it can do lawfully, which is, okay, he's run for office. Now he is the president. Now remove him. And I think that was the thing that Brief was terrified of, of the only thing worse than the court deciding this now is the court deciding it in a year 
when Donald Trump has possibly won the election. And then we have enabling legislation and a Congress prepared to disqualify him. I didn't hear much that, in fact, I heard uh, very strongly Jason Murray saying, dear God, don't let that happen. Um, What's your answer to people, which is kicking the can down the road might set us up for true catastrophe in the future? I think it absolutely might. I mean, I think that 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 oh dear, the, the, you know, the only thing worse than deciding this case now is not deciding this case now. I don't mean to be alarmist or or, or threatening, um, and certainly we are very hopeful that the justices will get in this case to what we think the Constitution and the law requires. If they don't, we're going to be back out there fighting for democracy and fighting for accountability. And I will always be hopeful that uh, that there will be another way to get to that point. But, you know, I can think of the, so many eventualities from Donald Trump being left on the ballot. And the first one is that he loses. And we've seen what he does when he loses. And so the first one is another insurrection. And I have yet to hear a convincing argument as to why that wouldn't happen in exactly the same circumstances we were in four years ago. So that's one thing. Another piece is that he wins. And he continues not to be qualified. In other words, if the Supreme Court doesn't overturn the finding that he engaged in an insurrection or maybe doesn't engage with that at all and just says you can't do this in this way at this time, then it does open the possibility of somebody who may well still be disqualified under the the Constitution having been elected. And who's going to adjudicate that then after, you know, tens of millions of people have voted for him Maybe nobody's going to adjudicate it. That doesn't seem like a great answer. Uh, Maybe somebody is. That seems like a powder keg. Maybe he assumes the presidency, arguably, when he shouldn't have. And the question of, of, of Donald Trump's disregard for the law and for the rulings of the Supreme Court will be back in a hurry in that circumstance. And so, you know, what's, what's the good outcome from Leaving him on the ballot and leaving this to, to, you know, to the democracy. I I don't, I'm not sure I see one. I think we will continue fighting to find one and looking to find one. But that's why this case is so important. And, and I'm certainly not in a, in a place to say it'll be fine regardless. Uh, I think the reason why we brought this case is both because the Constitution requires it, but also because the democracy needs it. I feel like I have to ask you this one crewy ish question, because I know what you think about and I know how you do your work. And I just wanted to give you a moment to talk about what it means to have the first question at oral argument come from Clarence Thomas, whose wife was, you know, at the rally that day, sending texts to Mark Meadows, trying to get state representatives to change their conduct. I mean, this is the the bread and butter of what your work has been throughout the Trump era is this kind of ethics question cannot be just left to, oh, well, it's it's nothing. And I, I, I you know, it seems as though hovering over this conversation about what the court will do and should do and how, you know, 
the court was not being asked to let Colorado take Trump off the ballot. The court was being asked to decide whether Trump needed to be taken off the ballot. Put all that aside. There's a side conversation that is not somehow a center conversation about Justice Thomas hearing this case. And it's a side conversation because there's nothing to be done about it, Noah. So uh, I have a couple of thoughts on that. I'm guessing none of them will be totally satisfying. Um, You know, one is that I think your point just on the substance is a really important one, which is that the idea was never to have the court say Colorado should decide this case. The idea was to get to the U.S. Supreme Court, which would then make a constitutional decision that Donald Trump was constitutionally prohibited from serving because he engaged in insurrection. I know that's not the question you were asking. Um, I will say on the, the question you were specifically asking, Crew has been very, very clear about our views of recusal and Supreme Court ethics in the past. I think right now we are looking at this as litigants, and we are hoping that all of the justices who are considering this case, which is all of them, are considering it fairly and with an open mind, and we believe that they will. Um, the last thing I will say, though, is that this question and, and the answer I'm giving, frankly, is an illustration of why the system of leaving it up to litigants to challenge justices as potentially conflicted doesn't make any sense. There's, of, of course, that's not going to work. And leaving justices to make that determination doesn't make any sense. You need to have some kind of outside body who can who can evaluate those kinds of questions. And people who don't have an interest in a particular case, that'll actually make life easier for the justices. They're not in an impossible position of judging their own objectivity. It doesn't make any sense to leave it to the person whose whose case is going to be decided by a judge to raise the issue of whether that judge is is the right person to decide it. And it would be good to have a different system. That was precisely the answer that uh, I sought. And I just want to ask you one last question, Noah, which is, and I, I this is where I started, but I think it's where we need to land. Um, and that is whether this lawsuit, which I think we can agree is hardball by anyone's standards, uh, and and not, I think, maybe what Crew initially conceived of its mission to be. I'm wondering if after arguments, it feels like it was worth it, even if it cannot or will not or may not establish the former president as an insurrectionist or, you know, actually put into effect the drafters of the 14th Amendments clearly stated goal of keeping those who swore an oath and then attacked the country from having a second chance to do that. And I know you've said so eloquently, we did this because we had to do it. It had to be done. It was a marker of something. But I just want to give you a chance to, to sort of end where you began, which is what did this litigation mark and achieve not just for you as crew, but for the country in a way that is more important than whether it turns out to be seven to two or six to three? It's a great question. And um, I'll say a couple of things. And one is 
We're still very much hoping that the justices are going to go back and read those briefs and consider that argument and ultimately do what we believe the Constitution requires. And, you know, I know that wasn't the, that wasn't the takeaway from most analysts, uh, but that's 100% where we are. Um, secondly, I, I do not waver for a moment on this having been worth everything that went into it. Uh, and there are a number of reasons for that. Um, you know, one is that, um, regardless of what happens, uh, what decision was made, um, this issue of Donald Trump having, uh, worked to keep himself in power after losing an election, inciting a violent mob to do that, which is the antithesis of what democracy stands for, has continued to be, is going to continue to be put in front of the American people as something central that they need to think about with regard to Donald Trump, with regard to American democracy. I mean, you saw it with the, the Supreme Court on Thursday. Everybody's tendency is to look away from this and pretend it didn't happen. And one of the functions of this case is it makes it impossible to look away and pretend it didn't happen. That in and of itself, I think, is is going to be incredibly, incredibly powerful. I also think that this brings this provision of the Constitution back. Regardless of whether it's used in this case, it's going to be litigated, it's going to be legislated about, it's going to be a thing that, that it, it is bringing life back to uh, this part of the Constitution that was put in there specifically to protect democracy. Um, doing this work keeps it from becoming dormant. In, in many ways, regardless of, of, uh, of what the Supreme Court decides, because I, I, I do not think they're going to decide it in a way that ends this as an active piece of American law. And the final piece I will say, to sort of circle back to things we were talking about earlier, is that you know the, the threat to American democracy is existential. And I do not think that, uh, you know, anybody's going to look back and regret the things. Sorry, it's been a long couple of days. Um, I do not think anybody is going to look back and regret the things they did to try to save democracy. People may look back and regret the things they didn't do. And that's not the situation that we're going to be in. Noah Bookbinder is president of Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. Crew brought the Colorado case on behalf of six Republican and unaffiliated Colorado voters. He is also a former federal corruption prosecutor, and I am lucky enough to be able to say he is also a friend. Noah, I'm such an admirer of what you have spent uh, the last few years working to do. And I'm just so grateful you gave us some time today. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. This has been a pleasure. And I appreciate you always being interested in you know the issues that matter. We are taking a short break. When we come back, Slate's Mark Joseph Stern will be here to talk through the veiled and pretty overt threats that ran through and under Thursday's arguments at the Supreme Court. So we are joined now for the second part of this parsing of whatever happened in Anderson with Mark Stern, my trusty co-pilot 
here at Slate Jurisprudence Land to talk about a couple of the other lingering reservations, anxieties, worries <laughs> following oral argument in the case on Thursday. So, Mark, welcome back. Hi. Happy to be here. You and I sometimes fret that at times it seems as though members of the court's liberal wing make pragmatic compromises for the greater good that don't always redound to the benefit of the greater good. And so I think I wanted to start by saying, and you wrote this Thursday, I think, in your first reaction to the arguments, that it felt as though certainly Elena Kagan, for some of those consequentialist reasons, and Katanji Brown-Jackson for um, harder-to-parse reasons, might be willing to sign off in an 8-to-1 or 9 nothing decision on some grounds that, that do no harm, with the hope, I guess, that A, it will make the court look nonpartisan, and that's a good thing. B, that maybe there's a horse trade that you and I have written about a couple times now (laughs) that's coming down the road on the immunity suit. But I just wondered if I could get your quick thoughts on all the ways in which this looks like it's a pretty bipartisan effort to keep Trump on the ballot. Yeah, and I can say a few things that I think Noah can't because I don't have a case pending before the justices. (laughs) Um, You know, this was in a lot of ways a a kind of shameful showing from some of the conservatives. And I think the fact that most, if not all three of the liberal justices sounded like they were on board with a compromise can occlude the reality that the court is furiously searching for this off-ramp. The court is furiously uh, scrambling to find a way to not have to either address the merits of this case, to not have to acknowledge that Trump is an insurrectionist, to not have to let states take him off the ballot. And so to see Justice Elena Kagan say this is problematic when we think about broader principles of democracy, it's problematic for one state to have such an outsized impact on who can be president, Um, it's problematic for a state to tell its own voters, you you can't vote for this person, that is a perfectly legitimate concern coming from Justice Kagan, who has really asserted herself as the Supreme Court's great defender of democracy in so many voting rights cases she has stepped up and and gone to bat for voters and their right to access the ballot to cast a, a vote that's equally weighted, uh, to, to limit states' ability to put a thumb on the scale, all of that. Um, but when you hear John Roberts making the same argument. When you hear John Roberts talking about the whole thrust of the 14th Amendment was to aggrandize federal power over the states and to limit states' ability uh, to interfere with civil rights and democracy, you kind of have to scream, uh, or as we said in our piece, I think just cry, or maybe scream and cry, uh, because this is the guy who wrote Shelby County versus Holder. This is the guy who said that Congress could not use the 14th Amendment to prevent racist states from suppressing racial minorities' voting rights. This is the guy who has consistently, until 
last term in one brief blip, just taken thwack after thwack at the Voting Rights Act and the constitutional right to vote. And so for him to sound like he's on the same page as Justice Kagan, again, I think it's easy to get it twisted. That does not mean that this case is so easy and so obvious that justices across the spectrum are lining up on the same side. What it seems to mean is that the liberals may be speaking from a place of principle. The conservatives are joining them out of expediency. And we can only hope, as you flicked at earlier, that it's in pursuit of some kind of grand bargain that perhaps ensures that the court denies Trump's immunity claim very quickly or, or something else. Because I really struggle to see the liberal justices signing on to a wholesale rejection of this claim without getting at least something in return, because no one can say with a straight face that in any other case, John Roberts or Sam Alito or uh, even Clarence Thomas really care about states disenfranchising voters because they don't. They generally think that is A-OK peachy keen. Not just that they care, but states have, say it with me now, Dignity. Equal dignity, dignity of the state. Dignity, dignity. And yet, yet, only in some context. I, I, I want to ask you another slightly Calvin Ball feelings ball. It's in the, right in the middle of Calvin Ball and feelings ball. It's Calvin <laughs> feelings. I want to ask you a Calvin feelings question, which I, I haven't seen talked about a whole lot, but really struck me only at three in the morning when I was trying to figure out what I thought about oral arguments on Thursday morning. And and the thing that I was really clocking that we hadn't talked about, I think, enough is the kind of mob-like threat of nice democracy you got that would be a shame if something would have happened to it. And, and by that, I mean, that was, that was my mobster voice. Um, by that, I mean, there is this subtle threat, right? And it starts in Jonathan Mitchell's briefing, right? That there's going to be, you know, all sorts of chaos and mayhem and violence if this is allowed to happen. We hear it in questions on Thursday from the Chief Justice. It's there in Justice Alito's questioning about vexatious, frivolous lawsuits that are going to follow up. And I think that we are so used to the kind of menacing tone of, well, you know, if you allow Colorado to knock him off the ballot, there's just going to be a lot of vexatious, frivolous, pointless suits by people who are willing to weaponize the legal system. And the degree to which you're just telling on yourselves when you do that, right? Like that every accusation is a confession. And that the idea, there's one answer to that, which is, I think, the answer that Jason Murray gave, which is, no, we actually know what to do about vexatious, frivolous, threatening suits that have no point. But the other answer is, I'm sorry, Justice Alito, are you threatening me? And, and we didn't talk about the sort of underpinning here of since when do we just accept the idea that if Colorado is allowed to deploy Section 3 of the 14th Amendment in a way that it was intended to be used, other people will use it for shitty outcomes, and therefore we should stop it because nice democracy you got there. 
Yeah, it's a threat, right? I mean, that's it. It's a threat that uh, if a majority of the court allows this case to prevail, if a majority of the court allows Colorado to remove Trump from the ballot, that justices like Alito are going to come out swinging for the other frivolous, ridiculous cases that should not be compared to this one, which is very much rooted in the Constitution, um, but that will emerge from red states that are trying to retaliate. That, you know, if Ron DeSantis tries to remove Biden from the ballot for fill-in-the-blank reason, he's an enemy of the state, he's a traitor, a Chinese spy, whatever, that, you know, Sam Alito's going to be lining up to refuse to stay the decision from a crazy panel of the 11th Circuit, keeping Biden off the ballot. I, I think our friends uh, Steve Laddick and Lee Kowarski wrote a great piece about this in, in MSNBC saying, well, actually, you know, the, the check here is the Supreme Court, you guys, who have full authority to step in and say, okay, this is a meritorious case. This is a frivolous one. This is a case that we will consider and embrace. This is a case that we will reject out of hand. Like, it's the Supreme Court for a reason. They have the last word on this and could easily shut down any of those kinds of absurd retaliatory moves by red states. So the slippery slope argument, and as you said, Robert cited it, Alito cited it, classic Alito grievance line, like classic watch what you're doing here because I'm going to come back twice as hard, twice as fast to say, you know, this is all going to redound to your detriment if you happen to squeeze out a win over my dissent. I am going to find a way to get back at you. I mean, it, 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 was it even a veiled threat, really, or was it just a threat? And so, yeah, I, in a way, it actually, I think it ties into the piece that we wrote on Thursday about judicial humility, where the court said over and over again, you know, uh, through Roberts, through Barrett, through Kavanaugh, well, this could lead to such dangerous places. We have to look at the consequences of our decision. We can't possibly be getting involved in each and every case that will arise out of red states and blue states alike if we let one state, Colorado, remove a presidential candidate from the ballot. I mean, where is that concern in literally any other case, but especially in gun rights cases where, I think this is an apt comparison, the Supreme Court in, in 2022's Bruin decision declared all gun restrictions presumptively unconstitutional and created an entirely new test out of thin air for assessing them. And we have seen scores of gun laws struck down, and now the Supreme Court's docket is getting flooded with every gun restriction under the sun being invalidated because the Supreme Court decided to completely change the rules and upend and overturn like centuries of precedent here. They didn't care about consequences then. They specifically said, in fact, that judges were not allowed to consider the consequences of gun laws when assessing their constitutionality. They specifically said, we don't care if a gun restriction could save a thousand lives or a million lives. If it doesn't have enough historical analogs from 1791, it is unconstitutional. Judges cannot look to the consequences ever, period. That is the rule. And here it was 
all consequence-based judging, all of it top to bottom. So I, I think that it's it's another example of a hypocrisy and a disparity between the different sides of the court, right? You know, in Bruin, in the gun decisions, the liberal justices have been very focused on the consequences. They've said, we can't pretend like we, we can just uh, close our eyes to reality and to what's going to happen in the real world after we render our decision. The conservatives said the opposite. And yet here, magically, they're all on the same page. Magically, justices like Roberts have discovered judicial humility and rediscovered the beauty of letting the people decide and letting democracy work itself clean. It doesn't sit right. <laughs> and uh, I can only hope that, again, I'll just keep coming back to this, I can only hope that the liberals wring something good out of this behind the scenes. I know we're supposed to pretend like the justices don't do horse trading behind the red velvet curtain, but we know that they do. And it would be a really acutely painful moment for the country if this just turns into a slam dunk win for Trump and otherwise the court continues to let him run out the clock in all of these other cases that matter just as much. It's so fascinating, Mark, to see the people who said that originalism was the hill that they would die on in Dobbs and in Bruin regardless of the consequences, saying like, oh, originalism, oh, what what ifs? We don't want Colorado to decide for the other states. Mark Joseph Stern ably, brilliantly, wonderfully uh, covers the law and the courts for us here at Slate. Slate Plus listeners, do not go anywhere. Mark is going to stick around for a few more minutes to dig into this originalism question and how it relates to a decision out of the Hawaii Supreme Court this last week. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Dahlia. See you uh, See you in the VIP club. If you are not a Slate Plus member, but you would like to hear bonus content like my endlessly fascinating conversations with Mark here on Amicus or exclusive extras from some of our sister shows at Slate, like the Political Gab Fest, Slow Burn, and What Next, do head to slate.com slash amicus plus for more details. Slate Plus members listen to all of Slate's shows ad-free, and they never, ever hit a paywall at slate.com. And moreover, they are some of our most favorite people because they support the work that we do here at the magazine and on this show, for which we are eternally grateful. Thank you, Slate Plus members, for your support. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. Thank you so much for your letters and questions. Especially this week, we got some really good listener mail and we really appreciate it. You can always keep in touch at amicus at slate.com. You can also find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Sarah Burningham is Amicus's senior producer. Our producer is Patrick Fort. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio at Slate. Susan Matthews is Slate's executive editor. And Ben Richmond is our senior director of operations. And we'll be back with another episode of Amicus next week. And until then, hang on in there.